new sermon series. I'm excited about this series. It's entitled God's Design for His Church. And what we're going to do is we're going to walk through First and Second Timothy over the next um, several weeks, next few months, and I'm looking forward to this study. Both of these books were written by Paul to his disciple in the faith, Timothy. Timothy would become a disciple of Paul's during Paul's second missionary journey. Most likely, Timothy became a believer um, during Paul's first missionary journey. On, and then on his second journey, he would become a disciple of Paul's. Acts 16.2 tells us much about Timothy. We read these words about, about him. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra in Iconium. Translated, Timothy was a man of character. And we all know in this room that character is important, isn't it? All of us in this room need to be men, women, students, and children that have character. Paul saw in Timothy a young man he could invest the Word of God into, that he could sow the Word of God into. And you know what Timothy saw in Paul? Timothy saw a rock of a believer. Timothy saw in Paul a man who was willing to die For the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Timothy would become a disciple of Paul's. These two men would join forces, and God would use them to take the gospel of Jesus Christ all throughout Asia Minor. So Paul writes these two books to Timothy as guidebooks. They're instruction manuals to help Timothy disciple believers within the church as well as to help him develop an infrastructure within the church that is God-honoring. I'm currently taking my second doctorate of ministry class at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. And this class is called Disaster Ministry um, Within the Local Church. And one of the books that we've been required to read is a book that's called The Disaster Ministry Notebook. And this was a great read. And the reason it was such a good read is because it literally laid out a, a plan for executing a disaster ministry plan within the church. The authors covered within this book the, the planning for a disaster, responding to a disaster when it hits, recovering from a disaster. They talked about the psychological effects a disaster has on individuals and how to minister to them during times of grief. And they concluded the book with, with tools, um, and they just laid out graph after graph for, for um, helping the church execute a disaster ministry plan. Why did they write this book? They wrote it for pastors like me and churches like ours to help us for when a disaster hits. One of the things the authors addressed in the book was the need to be prepared for a disaster, not if a disaster hits, but for when a disaster hits. God's Word, you know what it does? It helps prepare us for life, doesn't it? One of the things that Paul would write to Timothy is found in 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17, where Paul shared these words with his young disciple. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. 
God's word prepares you and I for eternity. God's word prepares us for daily living. God's word prepares us for the work of ministry that all of us have been appointed to. And God's word helps prepare us for when the enemy attacks. Not if the enemy attacks, but when the enemy attacks. The church Timothy pastored was being attacked by the enemy. The enemy was attacking from outside the church, but unfortunately the enemy had also reared its ugly head into the church and was attacking the very infrastructure and the very core of that church as well. So Paul writes to his young disciple Timothy to equip him and to help prepare him for the work that was before him. So if you have your Bibles this morning, um, this morning is really going to be an introductory message into this series that we're going to walk through. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 together. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Really focusing in on the first five verses, and then next week we'll pick up at verse 6 and walk through um, that that section of the Scripture. But these are the words that, that we read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, By command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. What I want us to see this morning is this, what you and I believe is important. What we believe is important. Our first point is this, we're going to see Paul's glorious greeting. This letter, like many of Paul's letters, begins with a greeting. Paul affirms that his credentials as an apostle, and he confirms that he has been given authority by the commandments of God to preach and to address Timothy with the words that are going to be found within this great book. So following the release from a Roman prison, which Paul was in. He would spend much of his time, much of his ministry years in prison. Following the release from prison, Paul would go back to the city of Ephesus. And he would once again minister to the people there. When Paul arrives, he saw a church that had become a storm center for false teaching. False teaching was running rampant within this church. In fact, Paul, on on his last missionary journey through this area, had predicted that this would come to be. He told the elders of the church in Acts chapter 20, he, he said shared these words with the elders. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. 
You know, no one wants to hear that about their church. Can you imagine if someone made that prediction about Friendship Baptist Church? Can you imagine if someone came in here and said, hey, within the coming weeks, the coming months, or the coming years, there's going to be a false teacher that arises from within your midst, and they're going to begin teaching a, 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 a word contrary to God's word. If someone began to say that to us, well, we would begin immediately to try to search out where that false teaching was come from, coming from because we'd want to nip it in the bud as quickly as we could. Paul shared um, with Timothy also in 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, he shared with him about what was going to happen um, in his church as well as during the end days. He shared these words. He said, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. He says, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth, and they will wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. You know, false teachers have been around since the beginning of, of the church. For there to be false teachers within our churches today should not surprise us because we see in God's word the prediction that that is going to be a reality during the end days. What worries me is not so much the false teachers that are in our churches today. What worries me is that those that are sitting in the pews can't recognize the difference between a true God-ordained teacher and a false teacher. That is what should worry us more than anything, is that there's people in our pews that can't identify the difference between a, a true teacher and a false teacher. Folks, our discipleship is important. Our spiritual growth is critical. If we do not know the truth, then we certainly are not going to be able to identify a false teacher when a false teacher rises up within our midst. It only takes twisting a few words here and there to make something untrue. There are many churches, many um, religions that have formed over the years with the title Jesus in their title. They claim to be Christian churches. And I'm not, um, I, I, several years ago, I led a store, a, 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 a session here at the church on Mormonism. And as I was preparing for this class, I went to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints website. And, and I just kind of wanted to look at it to see the structure of it and how it was put together. And as I read through that, um, that website, there was a very, very clear gospel presentation on their website. If you were to go there and you didn't know that it was a false religion, then you could easily get sucked into that trap. Well, here's the deal. What they've done is they've twisted not just a few things, but many things, but they sound eloquent in their approach 
of how they advance their gospel. That's a problem if, for, for so many people. When these men and women come and knock on doors and say, hey, we've got a story that we want to share with you. And if, the, if you and I don't know the truth from God's word, what could happen? We could get sucked in to that trap. Well, what is happening in this church is there are leaders that have arisen up and they are twisting a few words here and there. And what Paul is directing Timothy to do is to be on his guard and to be ready and to be prepared and to be able to combat a false truth with the truth, the authentic truth from God's word. You know, Timothy, here's what we know about Timothy. He was a man of character, but he was also a dedicated follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he, he was a committed disciple of Paul's. In verse 2, we read, To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul addresses Timothy as a child in the faith. Some of your translations may use a son is how Paul addresses Timothy. I think Paul lived a pretty lonely life. He was single. He had no children. The Jews opposed him. Many Christians opposed him. He would live what I would, as I read through God's word and read his letters and read the stories about Paul, he would live a pretty lonely life. He would spend many years of his ministry in a prison or under some form of captivity. And I'm sure Paul had many followers over the years, but there was something different about Timothy. Timothy was different. We see a very special bond between Paul and Timothy, don't we? We see it throughout these two letters that he writes to him. You know, it should be the goal of every parent in this room to raise children to become followers of Jesus, to become respectful young men and young women, to become knowledgeable, kind of, kind of street smart, I guess you would say. We want to prepare our kids for the world that is awaiting them outside the doors of our homes and the doors of our churches and, and that safe shelter that we have raised them in. We want to raise up responsible citizens. And we also want to raise up mature believers, God-fearing young men and young women that love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart. One day, we are all going to have the privilege, if you haven't already had this privilege, to launch our children out of our home. Some of you are like, I'm going to kick them out of my home. But we're going to have that opportunity to, to launch our children out of our homes and we want to make sure that they're ready for the world that is awaiting them. And not only do we want them to be ready for the world, but we want the world to be ready for them as well. It should be our goal to raise spiritual children. There is no doubt about that. It should also be our goal to raise up disciples of Jesus. Men, women, students, and children that love Jesus Men, women, students, and children that we can raise up in the faith and launch them into a ministry of their own. And that ministry isn't necessarily a church position, a pastoral position, but anywhere and everywhere 
All of us that are believers, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, are ministers of the gospel. And so what we want to do is we want to get them to the point where they're ready to do ministry themselves. How many Timothys do you have in your life? How many people are you investing the gospel in? If no one, let me challenge you to begin to find someone that you can invest in. You may be in this room and you're like, man, I'm not ready to invest in someone else because no one has really ever invested in me. If that's you and you want somebody to invest in you, I would love to invest in you one-on-one. And we got men in this church and women in this church that would love to invest in you as well. Ask us. Talk to me, and I will help you find a Paul in your life. You may be a Paul in this room. You're like, man, I need a Timothy. Find me. I will help you also find a Timothy. Paul was a proud spiritual father. He had developed and equipped Timothy for the work of ministry. Notice our next point this morning is this. Notice Paul's urgent warning. We read in verses 3 and 4, Paul says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. You know, I think it's important before we kind of break, um, dive into the church that Timothy pastored to get an understanding of the context in which he pastored. The city of Ephesus, it was a very large city. It flourished commercially. It was diverse. It was religiously complex. It was the site of the temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the world during its day. Wretchedness occurred within that temple. It was a vile place full of pagan worship and just debauchery and things of the, some of the things that happened there would, 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 would just blow your mind. It was a very immoral, multicultural city. And it is believed that within that city, Timothy would be stoned to death because of an encounter that he had with the followers of Artemisus. You know, Danny and I were in New York City this past week. And I've been to New York um, several times on mission trips, and Danny and I have been up there before on vacation. And there are some amazing ministries around the city's, city of New York. We've been there on a mission trip as a church. Um, these ministries and churches are reaching people with the gospel. They're serving the homeless. They're helping addicts get off the street and, and to get clean. They're helping homeless people find shelter. And, and they're ministering both to widows, and children. There's some ministries around that city that are doing a lot of good things. However, New York City is also a city that I think would rival Ephesus when it comes to its debauchery. Church after church around that city has compromised the gospel. They have conformed to the patterns of the world instead of teaching others to conform to the pattern of God for living. Timothy was tasked with leading the church within this wretched city. In the midst of the paddle, 
Paul urges Timothy to go toe-to-toe with those preaching a gospel contrary to the one true gospel. False teaching was such a problem that Paul mentions in verse 20 of chapter 1 two individuals that he kicked out of the church because of their false teaching, Hymenaeus and Alexandra. Have you ever said, I would not wish this on anyone? Or I would not wish this on my worst enemy? Or that person is stepping into a hornet's nest? Have you ever said anything similar to that? You know, I know I've known preachers that have stepped into churches that were, that were very messed up. Doctrinally messed up. Politically messed up. There was fighting going on within the church. There was fighting going on outside of the church. And I would not wish a church like that on my worst enemy. Well, Timothy stepped into that kind of situation. One commentator says this about this church and about the false teaching that was going on. Paul talked about the myths and genealogies taught by the false teachers. These false teachers were taught, they were taking extra biblical writings that included stories and myths about different Old Testament figures. And they were using these writings to add to God's Word. When we get to chapter 4, we'll see that they were teaching that you shouldn't get married and that you should abstain from various foods. These false teachers were putting rules and regulations on God's people that were nowhere present within God's Word. It is essential that you and I learn to use God's Word correctly and interpret his word correctly and share it with other people correctly as well. Our final point this morning is this. Notice Paul's important plea. In verses 5 through 7, we read these words. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The church is under attack. And Timothy certainly was under attack as well. Today's church is under attack as well, isn't it? I mean, just look at this week. While, while Danny and I were on vacation, I kept up with the news, and there was a few stories that happened this week that really um, were directed at Christians and attacking us and attacking the church. And one of those was um, the vice president's wife came under attack because she teaches at a Christian school that takes a biblical stance towards mar- marriage. She upholds to God's value system. This school upholds to God's value system. And because of this, she was viciously attacked. Last weekend, all of us saw this, but a group of teenagers were in Washington, D.C. at a March for Life rally. They were standing up for the unborn baby's right to life. These young people came under attack. The media backlash was horrendous. The celebrity backlash was vile. These young people in the school they attend have received death threats all because they stood up for a child's right to life. And you all saw this this week, but New York City just passed that a baby could be aborted up until the moment of birth. That is all kinds of messed up. 
that is horrendous. That made my stomach turn whenever I, I read that. Any baby being aborted is wrong. Okay? God's word makes it clear that life begins in the womb, not outside of the womb. We have, and I say we as a society, as humanity, have, have determined that life begins outside, not inside, and that is wrong. As a Christian, if you and I do not agree with the mainstream, then we are villainized. When the church is being attacked and the enemy is hurling those fiery darts our way, notice how Paul tells Timothy to respond. Does he tell, the, does he tell Timothy to come out with, 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 with guns ablazing or sword in hand or fist ready to, to swing? No. He tells him to respond with love. That is not natural, is it? It's not normal for us to do that. Our normal response is, you push me and I'm going to push you back. You hit me and I'm going to hit you back. You attack my family, I'm going to attack your family, I'm going to attack everyone else that you're close to. That is how we respond. Danny and I, um, one evening we were walking the streets of New York, and, and as we were walking those streets, there was a, a, um, two vehicles, and, and both of them were turning right, and the front vehicle got stuck behind a truck. And so the, the second car just laid on the horn and did not let up. And I'm not talking about like a Honda Civic horn that was kind of like a beep, beep, beep your horn, um, Joe. It wasn't that kind of horn, all right? It was a loud, boisterous kind of horn. And I told Danny, and this is literally what I told her. I said, if I was in that front car, I'd put that car in park, and I'd get out, and I'd go back there and tell that person a thing or two. And the thing is, my wife knows me well enough to know that I would probably do that. Well, is that loving? Absolutely not. But that is kind of how we have been programmed to respond, isn't it? That is how we were programmed to respond before Christ. But after Christ, we have been programmed to respond in a different way. The gospel produces within us the ability to respond to people in a loving way. Regardless of who they are or what they have done or how they live or what they believe, it doesn't matter who they are. We have been commanded to respond to people as loving individuals. We don't have to agree with them. We don't have to support them, but we're to respond in a Christ-honoring, loving way. What did Jesus say whenever he hung upon the cross? After he had been beaten and whipped, a thorn, a crown of thorns had been placed upon his head, he had been nailed to that wooden tree, and from the cross, what did Jesus utter? He said, for, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even from the cross, J Jesus demonstrated his great love towards sinners. And you and I must learn as well to respond to those that attack us in a loving way, in a non-confrontational way. Have you ever heard the term love the hell out of them? That's what we're to do, literally. 
a person that is not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to love them to the point where God, we pray, gives us an opportunity to share the good news of salvation with them so that we have the opportunity to change that person's trajectory from a life of eternal separation from God in hell to a life of eternity with Jesus in heaven. The gospel produces love within us. And the gospel teaches us how to respond to people. Notice this, that love in the gospel produces a pure heart. You know, I cannot make you loving. Students, your parents cannot make you loving. This world cannot make you loving. But the gospel of Jesus Christ can certainly make all of us in this room loving people. Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Out of a pure heart. That's what the gospel does. It it produces within us a pure heart. And the gospel teaches us how to respond to other people in a loving way. Love in the gospel also produces a good conscience. This is not talking about just feeling good about our past actions, but is talking about a conscience which leads us to do the right thing. Paul tells us right here that the only thing that produces a pure heart and a good conscience is one's faith. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, all of us in this room have a built-in, let's call it a metal detector, okay? Um, If you've ever traveled or if you've ever gone to a high-security area, then you've gone through a metal detector. Before you go through that metal detector, what do you have to do? You have to take off your belt. You've got to take everything out of your pocket. You've got to take your watch off. You've got to take your phone out of your pocket. I mean, literally everything out of your pocket. Or you're going to set off that metal detector. Now they have those x-ray machines where it completely violates you as you stand like this, and it does that scan of your body. If you have anything on your person, a piece of paper, you know what's going to happen? They're, one of those TSA agents, they're going to pull you off to the side and they're going to begin that dreaded pat down. In fact, when Danny and I were leaving out of Dallas, she got pulled aside and she got that dreaded pat down. I kind of watched that this is what's happened. I mean, that person went all over her body and she came up to me and she goes, I feel violated now. And I said, been there and done that. You and I have in our person, it's like a metal detector. It's the Holy Spirit And our Holy Spirit that dwells within us is a sin detector. Now, when he is a detector of sin, what happens? There's like an alarm that goes off within our self, isn't there? That that Holy Spirit says, hey, you shouldn't do that. That's just wrong. Why are you pursuing this? I mean, that alarm goes off and on, and it's kind of sometimes the Holy Spirit's like that person in that second vehicle just laying on that horn. The Holy Spirit is not going to allow us to do anything without first telling us whether it is acceptable or unacceptable. 
there's going to be an alarm, and that's what your conscience is. That's where the Spirit of God pricks our conscience. A good conscience shows us what is right and what is wrong. That is the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. The third thing that we see here is that love in the gospel produces a sincere faith, a real faith, a deep-seated faith, an authentic faith. When you and I became Christ's followers, 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us what? That we become a new creation. We become new people. The old way of life is gone, and there's a new life that comes upon us when the Holy Spirit indwells within us. That's what the gospel does. Is the gospel makes us new. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The gospel creates within us a new life that enables us to be guaranteed the gift of eternal life when we repent of our sins and place our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul goes on to speak, and we're going we're gonna to get into this next week, but I want to wrap up the message this morning. But Paul goes on to speak about the motives of false teachers. He says in verse 6, Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions. Unnecessary discussions. Discussions that are not God-honoring, but more self-honoring. Verse 7 tells us that these people desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. These teachers' motive is for power and position, not to see men, women, students, and children transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's almost like they like to listen to themselves more than they like to see lives transformed. As we walk through this series, my prayer is that all of us will have the opportunity to be made into disciples of Jesus, but also that all of us in this room will have a passion and a desire to see other people made into disciples. But also, I pray that, that as we walk through this, as a church, as Friendship Baptist Church, we look at our infrastructure. We look at what a healthy church looks like. And we seek to become the kind of church that God would have us to be. It is essential that you and I know the truth. And it's essential that every believer in this room can teach the truth to other people. We must be able to also identify false teachers. If we can't identify false teachers, then we're certainly not going to know when the truth is being preached either. And we need to be people that respond lovingly to other people. We can't respond to hate with hate, can we? Even though that's our natural, it seems like, fleshly um, reaction to all things. When you do something to me, I'm going to do it right back to you, whether Christ dwells in me or not. Well, that's not the case. We are to respond lovingly to all people. And may we all desire for Christ to be exalted and not self. May we desire for Christ to be exalted in our lives, that they be less and less and less of us every day and more and more of the Lord Jesus Christ 
every day. Folks, what we believe is important. And this morning, if you are here and you have yet to enter into a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to make the greatest decision that you could ever make, and that is to enter into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That is to be forgiven of your sins and to cry out to Jesus to be your Lord and Savior. If you're here this morning and you do not know Jesus, you come. You may be here this morning, you've been visiting this church a while, and the Lord is leading you to come to Friendship Baptist Church and make this your church home, and we invite you to come as well. You may be here this morning, and, and during this time of invitation, you may need to just pray. And pray and ask the Lord to reveal to you who it is that you need to disciple or who it is that needs to disciple you and to equip you so that you then can go out and disciple and equip other people. I don't know what decision you need to make, but there's a decision you need to make. You come after we pray. Let's stand together. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer. And if there's a decision you need to make, we want to invite you to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you again for this morning. Thank you for our, our, our brief time in your word. Father, we do know that what we believe is important. And Father, how we respond to your word is important as well. And what we teach other people is important. And so, Father, I pray for myself that I will always handle your word correctly and teach your word correctly. And I pray that for every single man, woman, student, and child in this room, that we will all do the same. Father, may we allow your word to, to um, mold us and form us and to transform us into the men and women that you created us to be. Father, as we enter into this time of invitation, if there's someone here this morning that, that aren't believers, they don't know where they would spend eternity if they were to die today, Father, I pray that you will just draw them this morning unto yourself. I pray that today they will repent of their sins and that they'll cry out to you to be their Lord and Savior and that they will be transformed into your image and they will begin a new life today. Father, there may be some here this morning that you're leading to become a part of this faith family. And Lord, if that be the case, we welcome them. But Father, there may be all of us in this room need to be praying even now for men and women, a man on man, woman and woman that can disciple others or be discipled. Just reveal to us what you would have us to do during this time of invitation. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.